see tonight, take time to be holy. It takes time to walk with the Lord. You can't just rush through a relationship with the Lord. Well, I've got to get this done. It doesn't work that way. It takes time. All right, well, let's go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Consider today what, or this week, what to speak about tonight after our history conference. I don't know about you, but that was a real blessing and encouragement to me uh, and a challenge to us. Of course, we don't live in those days, we live in different days. And that's a little bit of what I'm going to look at tonight. Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read the first eight verses. It says, The former treatise. Have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach? And I'm sorry, I don't have the mic, so I guess I'll just stay right here. Uh, forgot about the mic, that's all right. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking to things pertaining to the kingdom of God being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. So tonight I'm just going to look at, again, God's plan for our church. God's plan for our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege that we have to be assembled together tonight. Thank you for the encouragement and the challenge we received from the Baptist uh, History Conference and and for those testimony of those that have gone before us uh, and how they encourage our hearts just to be faithful uh, in our day and time, for the faithful to the word, as your word tells us. So, Lord, I pray that you help us, uh, just encourage our hearts and strengthen us, help us to have determination, resolve to be faithful until you come for us or you take us home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Bible says here that uh, in verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. I actually want to start in verse 1. The last part of that verse, of all that Jesus began to both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. But sometimes we can get discouraged, you know, we the thing you know, when you consider the stuff we heard the last, uh, you know, Wednesday through Sunday about our Baptist history uh, and, and, you know, Waldensians and, and um, of course, they, they suffered much. But then in colonial days and how they saw great revivals and, you know, church planting explosions that lasted for hundreds of years that had 
effect for hundreds of years. And sometimes we can get discouraged because we don't see people respond that way today. Do we? At least not right here. At least not in America. Now, in some parts of the world, there, there seems to be some glimpses of, of souls being saved, but, but uh, we don't see that kind of thing that, that happened like here, as you know, in Acts chapter 2, in the, in the early book of Acts. Um, we're in colonial America. And, but I want you to think about the context of those times. And that makes all the difference in the world. Or I might say it this way, the background. Or the groundwork that was laid. You know, the, 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 the revival, if you want to call it that, that broke out in Acts chapter 2 and continued throughout the book of Acts, uh, although it did slow down. But, you know, the first several chapters there, chapter 2 through 4 particularly, there was multitudes saved, you know, continuously. But the context of all that, and these people repenting and being truly born again, is remember, just ten days prior, Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven in the sight of his disciples. He had been seen after his resurrection for 40 days of over 500 people. You know, and of course, his resurrection could not be confuted or um, refuted. Uh, the crucifixion was well known all over the Roman world. It was very well known. Paul told, was it King Agrippa, these things were not done in the corner. Weren't done in the corner. It was well known. And prior to that, even to that, prior to that, for three and a half years, Jesus had preached, taught, performed miracles, I mean, made the blind to see, the lame to walk, raised the dead back to life, you know, and he traveled throughout all Israel. And you know how many there was after three and a half years? There was only 120 in the upper room. After all the things that he did, you would think, why? And all there was 120? You know what he was? You know what they were doing? You know, not only and Jesus is not the only one that preached. John the Baptist did for him for six months. But the disciples did also. He sent disciples out in several occasions, two by two. So all this had gone on for three and a half years. And he, of course, he had told them that he was the Christ. And he told the disciples that in, there's an interesting verse in, uh, uh, John, what is it? John 14 and verse 12. There's an interesting statement there. <laughs> that often puzzled me, puzzled me, but I think I have it figured out now. Sometimes it takes me a little while. But in John fourteen twelve, he says to his disciples, Verily I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Now, Jesus wasn't saying you're going to do greater things than I did in, in, the, in respect to making the blind to see, the lame to walk, and raising the dead. But your work's going to be much greater in scope. There was not many that really followed Jesus during his earth. Even his own brethren didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. We see those three and a half years was what prepared those people for the day of Pentecost. So the groundwork had been laid. There, the context, so the, the context of, of, of that was that 
you know, this, this was the fruit of three and a half years of labor. You know, there was even, there was even at this time an expectation that Christ may appear. Luke chapter 3 verse 15 says, And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. So they were looking for some kind of appearance of, of the Messiah or something. They were expecting him. Because the Bible, you know, Daniel 9 prophesied something was going to happen during this time. That's why the wise men came. So there was an expectation, and they thought maybe John was he. But John said, no, I'm not he. But John did point him out. But people really didn't accept the fact that it was he until after Pentecost. Many then turned and believed. So that was that was the kind of the the background or the context to them believing. And and I want you to think about <coughs> uh, colonial America for just a minute. Excuse me. Why why the great ingathering of souls in the colonial America? Well, you know you didn't have TV, you didn't have internet, and you didn't have telephone. Um, what you had was a few books in America. Do you know what those few books were? Well, the one that was read the most was the Bible. And a website called A Place of Reading says this, quote, Mothers entrusted with the care and well-being of their children's soul. By the way, they homeschooled too. What's going to God? Most part. Faithfully sat them down and taught them to read at home. Reading the scripture and devotional text was the first step in a long process of religious enculturation. Puritan minister, increased mother, by the way, this is a state church minister, of the prominent Massachusetts mother family came from elite educated households. Still, he wrote, I learned to read from my mother, unquote. Rich or poor, mothers were expected to teach their children to read. And the Bible however, was the staple instructional reading text. The most humble of homes usually possessed a Bible or two which to instruct children and to engage in daily religious devotions. In fact, by the early 18th century, so that'd be early 1700s, the colonies of Massachusetts and Connecticut helped provide a Bible for those too poor to buy one for themselves. Can you imagine your government? I mean, they're sending you stimulus checks. But can you imagine the government sending you a Bible because you may not have one? If you were too bored, too poor to buy one, then they'd send you one. Now they want to give you a card for food and a card for free health care and, and, you know, which you conclude if you want to get gender surgery or whatever you want to do, you know. No. This was, this was the book they read. And then, they, and then I, I, I Googled this, what was the most popular reading in colonial America, and, and here is five books that come up. Um, and the first one was, this. so this would be other than the add to the Bible yet, Pilgrim's Progress. Now, Pilgrim's Progress is a Christian allegory, but there's no such thing as easy believism in that book. It's true Christianity and the consequences of living for God. Uh, but... You know, and of course, that was written by John Bunyan while he's sitting in prison, prison for preaching without a license from the state church. Uh, so that was published in 1678. In 1682, 
So, so again, remember, all these revivals took place in America were during the 1700s. So, 1678, Pilgrim's Progress comes out. One of the most popular books in America, colonial America. 1682, there's the narratives of the captivity and restoration of Mrs. Mary Rowlandson, or the, the other uh, the subtitle was The Sovereignty and Goodness of God. It was about how God protected her. She was captured by Indians and how God protected her and, and, and provided a, a means for her to release. And she wrote about that experience. And of course, you know, it's talking about the sovereignty and goodness of God. Third book was The New England Primer by Benjamin Harris. Now, what's significant about the New England Primer? Well, it was a, it was a school book to teach children how, children how to read. And every letter had a little quotation with it. And most of the and pictures and most of them came directly from the Bible. A, in Adam, A in Adam, in Adam's fall we sinned all. B, book, the li- thy life to men, thy book attend, and a picture of a Bible. Uh, D, for example, it's a picture of a dog going to bite a guy in the behind, and it says a dog will bite a thief. Uh, F is for the word fool and has a picture of a fool he says the idle fool is whipped at school uh, glass as a picture of an hourglass as runs the glass man's life doth pass so the, you know, with even this primer children are taught from early age things that we wouldn't dare teach kids today for example uh, let's see this Proud K, proud chorus, troops were swallowed up. Or how about this one? Uh, T, time cuts down all, both great and small. And there's a picture of a guy there, like like the death angel with a with a mowing sigh, you know. And uh, the, the 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 Y is use is for youth. Use forward slips death. Soonest nips, and this picture of a like a death angel with a sword chasing a young man. So they're teaching him not only you know, and and Z is Zacchaeus did climb the tree, his lord to see. So again, you know, S is Samuel anoints whom God appoints. So you know, even these this primer that was for children, there was what we consider today terrifying lessons about real life, death, judgment. So, you know, these were, these were some of the things that were, were being taught or read in homes uh, in the 16, late 16, in the 1700s in this country. Uh, there's a treatise of civil government which didn't come out until actually 1773 by John Locke, which also taught some about uh, religious liberty. But, you know, of course, that's later than John, John Clark and Roger Williams and some of the the early uh, Baptists in America. Uh, there's another book, Wonders of the Invisible World by Cotton Mather. So all these things have biblical teaching in them, and this is the stuff that was being read. This is the only things available, really, in, a, in colonial American homes. And so a foundation, again, a foundation was being laid, and when the gospel began to be preached, uh, you know, you know, because the churches, the state churches were dead. But when the gospel began to be preached uh, freely, of course, there was many converts as a result 
of those th- of the of that uh, uh, was the fruit of that preparation. And so sometimes we can get discouraged, but you know we don't live back then. We live now. We live in the nasty now and now. And uh, we're to serve God now. And and, and you know. Uh, whatever happens, we're to be faithful to God. You know, one of the things the Bible says in Revelation, <coughs> excuse me, it says they were faithful uh, uh, to witnessing to Him. You know, so we must be faithful, and by doing that, we have to, of course, earnestly contend for the faith. Jude, Jude one verse three says, "Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith." So we must continue to earnestly contend to the faith. The, the, the challenge for us to go into all the world and preach the gospel is not a, is not a opportunity or a, uh, something that we can set aside to make the gospel easier for people to receive. No, we have to speak the truth. Uh, there needs to be a genuine love for the Lord. Of course, that's what you know, earnestly contending in faith was all about. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all our soul, and all our mind. And and we're to guard and obey and keep His Word, John 14, 23 and 24 tells us. We're to cherish it as valuable, preserve it as something of value, of worth, of great importance. See, the, so see, the thing is today, and what I see is a lot, a lot is that that Parents, and we're just talking about just a little bit. Uh, some we were talking about just a little bit earlier about, about uh, <coughs> you know, you know, when, when we were young, our parents could either be they could be our advocate or they or they would be our prosecutor. You know, depends on what we did. It wasn't automatic that our parents would side with us. Nowadays, you you dare, uh, you know, want to chase. Uh, you know, correct a child, and boy, the parents are angry and upset and at defense. And you know, my little Johnny would never do such a thing, and all this kind of stuff. See what that is? That's a love for God, or love for your fellow being, than it is more of a love for them than it is for God. Now, we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. You know, people don't understand what love is today. Love is not tolerance of evil. Love corrects evil. It corrects evil. Love is not determined by whether I accept your lifestyle or not. Love is doing what is right. We're to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. Of course, there needs to be also a compassion, a compassion for the lost. You know, Jesus said the second command was like unto it, love Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And that's, of course, a corresponding thing. You know, uh, and so we are to love sinners, but, you know, again, love doesn't excuse sin. God doesn't overlook sin. You know, Jesus said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. What was he doing? He was correcting him. Why? Because he loved him. And he also said, Satan desires to have you and sift you as wheat. Did he care about Peter? Yes, he did. He was warning Peter. Peter, you need to be careful. You know, Peter was quick to run his mouth and boast. You know, he said, 
know, he, 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 you know, he said he would not deny the Lord. Of course, the Lord told him he would. He did. And so, you know, there, there has to be a compassion for the lost, but that compassion is not does not overlook sin or excuse sin, but it also speaks the truth. We're to bear witness to the truth. And the truth is, men and women are sinners, and they need to repent. They need to turn from the wicked ways. And so, you know, our responsibility as a church is to give out the gospel. Uh, as we see here in the book of Acts, and as we heard this, this last week, we are to reproduce ourselves. Just like the commandment was given in Genesis to go into all the world and multiply and replenish the earth, we as churches are given the command to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're to multiply ourselves. And this is what this was a pattern we see here in the New Testament that the disciples, Jesus commanded the disciples in verse 8 to go into all the world. There will be witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. And of course, this is what they endeavored to do after persecution broke out. You know, they, they were a little reluctant at first to go, as we often are. When persecution began to become the church of Jerusalem, they scattered and went everywhere preaching the gospel. So we are commanded to reach our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. And again, I understand our culture is different. It's filled with forms of Christianity which make it I believe difficult to convince people they're lost you know Jesus said in Matthew he said the, the, the Pharisees go about making one a proselyte and then making him twofold more the child of hell than himself and what he meant by that is look you make it twice as hard for that person to ever accept the truth because now they have a form of religion without the righteousness of God. Of course, we got a new religion in America, in case you didn't know. Um, I don't know how many of you saw this, but New York Times headline. Quote, Biden, most religiously observant president in half a century, Ushering in a new liberal Christianity, unquote. We see the most religiously observant president in half a century. What about Ronald Reagan? Um, you know, what I understand, Biden only goes to church when it's convenient. Or when he gets, you know, when, when he's trying to put on a show. You know what I say to that? Welcome to the new standing order church. Or the new state church. Where, you know, this is what, where it's speaking out against sin as a flesh. Sodomy, transgenderism, all that's going to be considered hate speech. Holding a different opinion, they're already doing it. They're already sensing those who hold a different opinion. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I read that, I thought, yep, welcome to the new state church. Liberalism. No? Yes, our culture is different. See, they have a form. But we are to continue to labor, and we're not to go with forms. We're not to be like the Pharisees. Uh, we're, to, we're to continue 
to be faithful. And of course, this requires several things. And I want to just give you three things here tonight that it requires. First of all, this love for God or this faithfulness distraught, uh, uh, requires or is demonstrated by giving. You know, giving is worship. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verses 1 through 5, Paul talked about the churches of Macedonia, and he said, Moreover, brethren, we do with you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power of our record, and beyond their power, they were willing on themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we receive the gift. Take upon us the fellowship, notice he calls it the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. You know, fellowship, remember, the definition of fellowship is working together for a common cause. So by these people giving, they were working together with Paul and Paul's team. Paul wasn't a loner. He wasn't by himself. He had, a, he had you might say, his own evangelistic team that traveled with him and helped him in the ministry. So these people in this area of Macedonia were working together with him through their giving. And this they did, as we hope, first gave their own selves to the Lord and us by the will of God. And so they were giving. You know, giving is worship. If it's given in the right manner. Um, you know, of course, giving is, you know, giving of your, it could be giving of your time, giving of your finances, but we often think of giving of finances. You know, I often say that that's worship of the Lord in our giving. It is worship. It's a, it's a, it's a form of worship. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and, and verses 1 through 8, Matthew 6, 1 through 8, Bible says, take heed that you do not your alms, and that has to do with giving, before men, to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sign the trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that the alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And he goes on and talks about praying. And he says, you know, don't stand on the street corners like the hypocrites, the Pharisees, and pray long prayers. No, you go into your closet. And the Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So, you know, Romans 12.8 talks about a gift of giving, and it says, let him that, have, that giveth uh, give with simplicity, that is, without pretense, liberally. You know, again, the idea here, to do it in secret, uh, not for display. And God will reward thee. God will reward thee. You have the greatest need. One of the greatest needs. We shouldn't say greatest, but to me it's, it's just as important. Is finances. I mean, churches can't operate without finances. Churches can't be planned without finances. I remember the first church planning conference I was at. We were still in Maine, and it was there was two guys there from Pennsylvania, and one had started. They had started a church. the The home church pastor and the church plant pastor were both there. 
And they, I mean, the, these this this church was very detailed. But anyway, they had a budget set up, $20,000 to start a church. And they they were able to do it because it's quite a large church. They paid the pastor, new pastor's salary for a year. Um, you know, it, it it costs a lot of money to start a church. You know, you start buying, you start renting a building. Like Brother Alexander said, it's going to be $2,000 just to find an office space. Literature. Literature is expensive, and then you get into places where there's, uh, you know, uh, gated communities, so you can't go into it. And canvas, so you have to send it, mail it. That's, that gets expensive. Uh, there's just a lot of expenses. And giving is important. Um, it's, it's a, it is a form of worship. Uh, you know, and, and of course, giving to, again, ties to church and then missions. Missions that we are partnering with other churches to reach into the, uh, into the uttermost parts of the world. Of course, we reach into Taiwan, Russia, Greenland, Portugal, uh, you know, the Arctic regions. Uh, so, you know, this is all through partnering or fellowshipping together, as Paul said, uh, for the ministering of the saints. And, of course, there needs to be laborers also that go. You know, in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the church of Antioch. They had laid their hands on and sent them away. And so there, there needs to also be laborers to go that are willing to go, like Brother Francis is willing to go to Taiwan. And we should be praying for the Lord to send laborers into his harvest. For some, that means moving. Maybe moving. Giving up temporal pursuits. But you know, put all those together. I remember Gary Forney saying one time, and I never thought of it this way before, but he asked a question in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and he said, Were to both go into, were to go into both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth? And so, missionary, we send missionaries to go to those places that we can't go to, or, you know, the Lord hasn't called us to. The Lord didn't call me to Taiwan. We did Brother Francis. And we're supposed to, but we as a church are supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, for them to go, yeah, they need us. But we need them to fulfill this verse. We need them to fulfill this command of God. To go for us. You see, it's not just Francis is laboring in Taiwan. We are laboring. When you go out and work in the world to earn a living and come and give your money, you're laboring together with Evan Francis, Chris Shaw, Kevin Jones, Gary Forney. And whoever you give your money to, and then the, the church, the, you know, whoever you give your money for through the church to give commissions, you're laboring together with them by your giving. You know, sometimes we think, well, they're more important. Well, without you and I, they couldn't go. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we are laborers together with God. Laborers together with God. 
You see, God's desired practice for the church is participation from all. We are to labor with Him, together with Him, in bringing this glory to Him and reaching the lost. You know, whether whether it's you know cleaning the church, mowing the lawn, maintaining the building, taking care of finances, teaching, music, talent, whatever it is, or giving and witnessing in your world. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. Again, Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, says in verse 15, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, so he left the area, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even if Thessalonica is sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. You see, he said, you Philippians, you're investing in the gospel by your giving. By your giving. You know, that's why I appreciate what Paul often writes. How Paul often ends his letters. You know, when we think about Paul and his church planning, we often think, have this idea that what Paul was just a great man. He did a lot of things. But he always lists all of his helpers. And then he talks about those who sent. You know, Priscilla and Quilla, they weren't they weren't a pastor and a pastor's wife. But it does say they had a church in their house. But we don't find anywhere where they actually preached that he was actually pastor. They were just faithful people. You know, they and they were from Rome. Now they were Paul met them at Corinth because they were kicked out of every all, all the Jews were kicked out of Rome for a period of time. So they came to Corinth. I think it was Nero that that commanded all Christians or all Jews to depart Rome for a period of time. So they had to leave Rome. But when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, they were back in Rome. And he said there was a said to greet them, he says, they have helped me much. And as the other brethren also. They were always people, they were people that were, that was spoken of, they helped. They helped. And so, God's desires, there's something all of us can do. All of us can do. Working together as a body of Christ to get out the gospel, whether it's here or whether it's out in the out in the regions beyond. God's desire is that we be active in working, you know, being a witness in our area, in our little world, and then giving that others can go where we are not called to go but where we are called to fellowship together with them by giving and by prayer. Might the Lord help us. You know, again, we don't live in those days. You know, sometimes we long for days like that, that we've heard about and read about, but we don't live in those times. We don't live in those times. But may we be people that have the testimony of Christ 
and I just are faithful to him in giving out the gospel and working that others may go, that fruit may abound to our account. Let's pray.